Pride Nation 101. Pride Nation 101, queer voices, music, opinions, and lives. From Highway 101 to the world. I'm Roland Corey Medina. And I'm Chad Oliver Swimmer, coming to you from the unceded land, now known as Casper, California. Welcome. This is Chad Oliver Swimmer, and today on Pride Nation 101, we are going to be talking about disordered eating and eating disorders. We are going to start this show off with a warning. Even discussing eating disorders can be challenging for many people and can bring us too close to the behaviors that we are trying to weed out of our lives. Take care of yourself and walk away if you need to. Eating disorders and body image issues are obviously society-wide, not just specially reserved for queer people. Here, LGBTQ plus identified folks experience unique stressors that may contribute to the development of an eating disorder. While there is still much research to be done on the relationships between sexuality, gender identity, body image, and eating disorders, we know that eating disorders disproportionately impact some segments of the LGBTQ community. For instance, 30% of bi men in the survey reported being afraid of losing control of their eating, and nearly a third said that they had difficulty focusing on work or other activities because they were thinking about food, eating, or calories. That information was from the pridestudy.org as reported by NBC News. I myself have heard so many people coming forth publicly with their own experiences, but rarely is it a man's voice. There are even more hidden subgroups. You can have decades out of the closet as a queer person, yet still have bags of Pepperidge Farm Milanos hiding behind your party dresses, never to be shared with even the most beloved of family members. Eating disorders for so many of us are a form of self-harm, so closely related to self-image, but even more, a part of our desperate struggle to have some sense of control over our own flesh and blood. I would like to tell you about the PRIDE study, pridestudy.org, the first long-term national health study of LGBTQ plus people ever undertaken. I highly recommend signing up and becoming a part of it. The more of us who take the time, the more we pave the way for future generations to have better representation and understanding nationwide. I joined the study last week. Participating entails a minimum of filling out one survey a year that takes about an hour. There are occasional shorter surveys that broaden the general base of knowledge. Participation is totally anonymous as all data collected will be aggregated. If you are interested, please go to www.pridestudy.org. They are looking for everybody. Back to our show about eating disorders. There is so much to think about here that we are going to move into our roundtable discussion with Emily O'Rourke Mills, MFT, Carrie Becker-Fishman, educator, actress, and life coach, myself, Roland Corey Medina, and my co-host, Chad Oliver Swimmer. Let's start by hearing from Carrie Becker-Fishman. I am currently a life coach, and my website is expeditionlifecoaching.com. I'm also working on my license and degree to be marriage and family therapist. I was a high school English teacher for 13 years. Um, what brings me here is my personal experience um, being a survivor of disordered eating um, and having more recently liberated myself from the pernicious clutches of diet culture. 
and I am 44 years old. Um, I had disordered eating behaviors and chronic dieting until probably my 40th year. So it's been a long journey and I, I can't tell you how grateful I am to be on the other side of it. And I don't think any one of us should suffer um, through that, um, the oppression of um, trying to fit our bodies into um, templates that might not be right for us. Yeah. Thank you, Carrie. Roland Medina. My name is Roland Medina. I am 19 years old and I have only very recently started to tackle my disordered eating habits. And this is a rough thought because it's another issue that I'm going to deal with. Anybody who's listened to past episodes knows that I have a lot to talk about when it comes to issues and life problems. But my first thought about disordered eating or hatred towards my body and what I was putting in it can go as early as four, if I really think about it. Anybody knows when you struggle for this for years and just for decades, it's going to hit you hard. And it's definitely hitting hard, but at least we're actually doing something about it. Yeah. Thank you, Roland. Thank you. <laughs> Emily O'Rourke Mills. Hi. Thank I am so excited to be here and having this conversation with you all. Um, my name is Emily O'Rourke Mills. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, I practice in Colorado in person and virtually practice in California. I'm licensed in both states. Um, and a lot of the work that I do with folks is around um, kind of how to develop a friendlier relationship with yourself, a more compassionate relationship with yourself, particularly for folks in the queer community, because what we know from the research is that folks in the queer community experience mental health disorders at a higher rate uh, than the general population, not because of any intrinsic kind of illness, but because the weight of living in a heterosexist, cissexist, sexist, racist society impacts our mental health. Um, so one of the things I specialize in is treating substance use disorders with, within the general population, but also the queer community and eating disorders and substance use disorders have their root in the same thing, which is health. Ultimately, like we, what we are trying to find our way to health, but the way we get there, we can do a lot of damage, um, to ourselves and to our communities in the meantime. So having these conversations and, and, I think sometimes it's scary as queer people to say like, yes, I've had these problems because our community is already thought of as being so beleaguered with problems. So talking about um, the struggles that we can have as a result of these larger systemic pressures um, and talking about how badass recovery is and how um, it's like sort of transgenerational healing, right? When we do the work to heal our own relationship with ourselves, with our, with food, with substances, with other people, um, we're breaking this lineage of, of distress and trauma. And I'm so here for that. Thank you, Emily. And I'm Chad Swimmer. And most of you listening have heard me talk about this before, but I'm going to talk about it more deeply. I am learning more about it. I am a compulsive eater. And I have been, if you have ever been to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting, you know that that's how you say, you, you introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Chad. Don't use your last name and say, I'm a compulsive eater, except I think it's far larger than that. And um, when I heard Carrie say that she's grateful to be beyond it, and I wish I were grateful because I'm not beyond it. I'm not actively binging and purging. 
but it is a daily struggle. It is a struggle. I'm 55, and I think I first became bulimic around 14 or 15 years old, and I was very active for 10 years, and it was really screwed up. And I have been thinking about it and thinking about food because I'm a producer of food and I'm, I've been a fanatic cook my whole life. And it's really hard to have this tortured love hate relationship with food and with drugs. And I think one of the biggest problems that I've seen, and I realized this when I was young is, is that most of the food that we eat in the modern world actually is more like, they're more like drugs and they behave in my body more like a drug than, you know, like a, a carrot doesn't have a self-reinforcing thing in my mind. I eat a carrot. That's great. But anything else I eat makes me want more. And anything else I eat, because it's, even if it's not that processed, it works in me like a drug. And I, this is, I'm going to send this over to Carrie in a sec, because Carrie said before the interview that she really wanted to talk about kind of the societal picture of the diet industry and the, the body image industry. But I think that that goes along with that our entire food system is one big eating disorder in every way that people don't know where their food comes from. So it's hard to have a healthy relationship with it. People don't know when to stop. We have just endless excess. Even most poor people have far too many excessive calories. So it's just too easy to overeat. And once you overeat, once I overeat, then I feel crappy about myself. And I think that my the orange, origins of my eating disorder were trying to fill an emotional hole with food. And then by binging and purging, I created a bigger emotional hole. And I think that there is so much money to be made off this this disordered eating that our whole society engages in, that it's really a hard thing to break. But um, I'm going to pass that to Carrie. Does this give you any thoughts? Yeah, thank you. Um, a lot. Uh, well, before I get going, I want to recommend a couple resources that really opened my mind and helped me get to a healthier place with my body and food. And the first one is called Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison. And that's a book, but she also has a podcast. And the other resource is Aubrey Gordon, who's published her second book. And she has a podcast called Maintenance Phase, uh, debunking various diets in the diet industry. And Aubrey Gordon is uh, definitely along the lines of body liberation. Um, so one thing, uh, it always comes back to capitalism and capitalist society being, you know, the food industry and food corporations, a lot of food industries are, are big, big corporations that have their hands in many other places as well. And it behooves corporations to keep people not only buying their special foods, but then also um, buying their special diet and wellness products. And we can see now um, the shift from diet industry to the wellness industry where things like Weight Watchers and, um, oh, I don't know, Slim Fast are going out of style, but then certain like nutrients and like Whole30 
clean eating, you know, new trends are coming into style. And all of these um, entail um, signifying your membership through buying stuff and labeling your stuff that way. So food and, and body image. Um, and then the other part of that too with body image is that as long as we feel bad about ourselves, we're going to keep trying to feel better by not only engaging in different eating behaviors, but also like buying different clothes and products. So it really behooves capitalism to keep us unhappy about ourselves. If we're really happy with ourselves and how we are, then we don't feel quite as um, pushed to fill that that hole with with products and and items and and membership in you know eating trends um and then that being said i learned a lot about the history of diets and body image through the anti-diet book and it really opened my mind to realize at what year um, scales started coming into people's houses, at what year the calorie came into like the American lexicon. It wasn't even a thing before. We had to stop and look that up. That was 1840. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and then prior to that, um, when clothing and during that time, when clothing became mass produced versus like everybody had, you know, bespoke clothing before, like everybody could sew or like have somebody sew your clothes um, and then alter it. But when clothes became mass produced, suddenly people had like to fit into pre-made clothes. It changes everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's really mind boggling. And, and uh, during that time, like the industrial revolution and shortly thereafter, that's when special eating comes into the picture. And people have largely heard about like Kellogg and, and that and Graham and all these, you know, trends back in the day. Yeah. So that's, that's what I've learned about like the societal connection. And then ultimately, ultimately when we look at the people who are most oppressed by body and diet culture, you see people who, you know, if we, if we can shirk those expectations, if we can free ourselves and liberate ourselves from those obsessions, um, we will have so much more energy to organize together to bring about change. So in terms of like the queer community, we know that there's already a lot of body dysmorphia um, and self-esteem issues if you're if you're not coming from a place where your family and culture is supporting your identity and who you are and and that can contribute to these body image and food and eating issues so if we can overcome that oppression we're going to be so much stronger and have so much more energy <laughs> to work against our oppressors yeah thank you carrie can I pass this over to Emily, who was saying, you know, a healthy relationship, a friendly relationship with yourself and, you know, tagging off what Carrie said that, you know, it behooves capitalism to have us feel crappy about ourselves. So I love what Carrie said, because I think that so, you know, so much of the ways that we relate to ourselves 
um, is is based in those systems of oppression, right? Capitalism, sexism, heterosexism, cissexism, all benefit from us feeling badly about ourselves. Um, I was reading a study in preparation for this conversation that um, LGBT youth are about three and a half times more likely to experience disordered eating behavior, um, largely to fit in with conventions of what they think they need to do to be accepted in their community, right? So disordered eating behavior can be a method that trans youth use to control their bodies, to make them look more like the gender that they know themselves to be when other treatments, hormone therapy, surgical interventions aren't available to them. So when I hear about things like um, gender affirming care being made illegal in certain states, what I know is that more youth will turn to things like disordered eating to create the bodies that feel more like home for them. And what we know is disordered eating or eating disorders are um, the most lethal mental health disorders, second only to opiate addictions. <clears throat> so, so folks are dying from diet culture in essence, right? Disordered eating has kind of uh, some neurobiological implications. Um, the reward centers in our brain get kind of pushed off balance um, when our relationship with food is, is problematic. Um, but we know that people are, this is another way that people are lost to systems of oppression. Um, and it's so easy, I think, one of the things about eating disorder, disordered eating, body dysmorphia, um, kind of self-rejection and self-hatred is that they thrive in secrecy and shame. We don't talk about it. We think we're the only one that's dealing with it. And what's actually true is that we aren't alone in these struggles. And these struggles are not just ours alone. They are cultural, they are systemic, and they serve systems of power. So to step into, to challenge those beliefs about who I'm supposed to be and how I use things from the outside to make me feel better inside, right? That's substance use disorder. So when I take something from the outside and I introduce it to my body and it changes the way I feel automatically, well, substance use disorder. Um, eating disorders are the same. I control what I put into my body. Either I'm putting nothing into my body or I'm kind of putting everything into my body, but it's a way to feel in control. It's a way to feel um, like I have power over something when everything in my world feels so powerless on an individual level. But then when we look at it from a systemic level, when we are kind of kept in um, in that cycle, in that loop of powerlessness, when we are either having a disordered relationship with food or beating ourselves up for having a disordered relationship with food, we aren't doing the healing work that would allow us to be more fully present in the world, which serves systems of power. Thank you, Emily. Well, I hate to cut that off right when she's really getting going, but if you want to hear more of that, just go to Lizzo, My Skin however you like to listen to your music. You are listening to Pride Nation 101, queer voices, music, opinions, and lives from Highway 101 to the world.
Let's go back to our roundtable discussion on eating disorders in the LGBTQ plus community with Carrie Becker-Fishman, Emily O'Rourke-Mills, Roland Medina, and myself, Chad Swimmer. I want to transition slightly into just a very brief description of what an eating disorder is on a small scale. Most of us only know about two eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia. And anorexia is theoretically starving yourself to fit into your ballet clothes or something. And ironically, I had a friend years ago who was from England. She grew up in a country that used to be called Rhodesia and she is white and she, her parents got her into ballet very young. And every day when she showed up at the studio, they put her on a scale and her parents would be charged money for every pound that she was over the weight she was supposed to be. And anorexia has horrible long-term consequences and can lead to death and does lead to death. Bulimia, which is what I thought I had, and I still say I have bulimia because it kind of makes sense to people, is basically binging and purging, and it's way more more, um, prevalent than anorexia but all of this, we don't know that much how prevalent it is because it's all about self-reporting unless you actually get so extremely ill with it that you end up in the hospital or die. In researching this episode, I um, found out about a few more kinds, and I'm going to pass it to Roland after this. Because Roland has also informed me about some eating disorders I didn't know about. But there's two that are really interesting that I deal with constantly, and one is called diabolemia diabetic bulimia. And if listeners know, I'm probably know I'm an insulin dependent diabetic, which means I inject insulin to stay alive. And insulin is the hormone that helps you gain weight, which in a natural world, gaining weight is important to surviving the winter. But in an unnatural world like now, insulin can, you can manipulate, manipulate your weight and yourself using insulin. And it's very dangerous and it's pretty horrible. And I have dealt with this. The other is called factitious hypoglycemia, which is the other side of insulin bulimia. And they're all eating disorders and they're really messed up and really struggle with it. I am, as you all know, a bisexual man and looking at the, the figures that among men, gay men have three times the the societal rate of eating disorders and um, bi men have twice the rate of gay men and there's not a lot of explanation why but again this is all self-reporting so we don't really know the true prevalence roland can you talk to us about so one of the other two of the other eating disorders you've heard about so if i were to self-diagnose i would say i would probably say that I have EDNOS, E-D-N-O-S, which is eating disorder not otherwise specified. And it's when a patient or victim is exhibiting a lot of the signs of a specific eating disorder, like anorexia or bulimia or orthorexia, whatever, but not all of them. Like I know for women, it's if you still have your period, you would be diagnosed with EDNOS instead of anorexia nervosa. And that's because I do a little bit of everything, which is not good, but I have definitely struggled with binging. I used to like actually buy a lot of food maybe <laughs> and then eat it all and then throw it all up. Even like in recent years, it's not, it was not fun. And something that I'm struggling with now is eating enough. 
part of it is on purpose. Part of it is because it's been such a habit for so long. I started skipping meals in eighth grade when I was 13 and I hadn't done absolutely nothing about it. I remember we had a science quote unquote project in ninth grade where we were supposed to track our calories and our nutrients for two days. And I was eating barely over a thousand calories in two days. I think it was like a thousand fifty or something. And nobody said anything. The teacher did not, (laughs) didn't look at that and say like, what is this? Like, are you okay? And I have a lot of negative thoughts about myself. Of course, there was some talk with a therapist about actually seeking out a diagnosis, except she's not specialized in eating disorders. There is a chance that I could go see a nutritionist. And she decided, no, you're not going to do that because some people actually go there for tips on how to lose more weight and how to not mess up your body as much. Wow. Yes. So that's why dietitians and nutrition experts do end up unknowingly uh, contributing to certain people's eating disorders, which it's not like it's not like you can blame them really like they're just doing their job. And they don't know that these people are coming in and actually (laughs) abusing their knowledge that they're using. But I also know about some newer words like binge eating disorder that can speak for itself, B-E-D, binge a lot, basically, (laughs) in a summary. And there's also orthorexia, which is like really compulsive exercising, I would say. You're exercising a lot, basically, to just try to keep every everything together and nice and tight. You know, everybody has their reasons for So does that mean that the person is exercising to enable themselves to eat more? It can in some cases, yes. Otherwise, it could be somebody who's exercising to lose every shred of fat that they have and try not to gain any more, absolutely. All right, Carrie. I want to add in to orthorexia that it is also an obsession with healthy eating. So people who really obsessively restrict certain food groups for more than, you know, like I'm not talking about celiac or like what Chad, you might, you know, be concerned about what you're eating due to your insulin, but this is like going beyond your health needs. So, you know, eliminating whole food groups, you can't go out to a restaurant without, you know, having very specialized orders. You might bring your own pre-prepared food to parties and things like that. And it turns into like um, real fear and anxiety around um, like food, food in general. I'd like to add to that and then pass it over to Emily that I am um, also a, a trained nutrition educator from Bowman College and Pengrove. Actually, really, yeah, you didn't know this. No, you've never told me this. Oh my God, every month he tells me a new thing. I'm a certified something, something. Anyways, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Well, when I, when I was doing this, we, were, we had lists of what you were supposed to eat, a certain amount of vegetables every day, every meal, a certain amount of this and that. And luckily, I love vegetables. But then I would actually overeat because I was trying to get that six cups of, of raw veggies and my egg and my filet and this and that. And like, oh, I can't eat all that I'm supposed to eat. So, Anyway, Emily. I actually wanted to just piggyback off of what Carrie said, because I think orthorexia is becoming um, more and more prevalent in clinical presentations, but it's also so, so socially acceptable, right? We're doing Whole30, we're doing paleo, we're doing this, we're doing that. And what it is, 
you know, when we're thinking about a mental illness, we're thinking about something that causes clinically significant distress or impairment. Um, and part of the thing with, with eating disorders and disordered eating is that it often feels, um, it doesn't cause the person distress until the kind of, until you've, you've gotten to this place where you're having some physiological um, impact. And even then the person might not feel psychological distress. So when we think about orthorexia, it's, I think it's, it's an incredibly under-researched, uh, but also under-reported, under-talked about eating disorder because it's so socially acceptable. Because it's like, I know, I remember throwing dinner parties in the Bay Area and being like, okay, who's off dairy this month? Who's off gluten? How are we doing this? Right? And some of that is related to, we know more about our individual bodies and what those needs are, but the cultural obsession with gluten-free, with dairy-free, with all of this is contributing to people ultimately restricting their food intake to feel in control. So if this, the, I think that the, the key point here is like what you're doing with food is really value neutral. It's neither good or bad, right or wrong. It's just what you're doing. Where we get into trouble is like, what meaning are we assigning to what we're doing? If I eat all paleo all day, am I good? If I slip up and I have a donut at the office, am I bad? Like when we create these categories that are so rigid that restrict our ability to fully participate in life, hmm. that's when I think we're getting ourselves into trouble. That is so powerful, Emily. You are listening to Pride Nation 101, queer voices, music, opinions, and lives from Highway 101 to the world. You are listening to KMUD Garberville, KMUE Eureka, KLAI Laytonville, K258BQ Shelter Cove. And you can stream on the web or listen to the archives at KMUD.org. Redwood Community Radio, your voice in the Redwoods. This is the Disquiet Media Hour, Pride Nation 101. Queer voices, music, opinions, and lives from Highway 101 to the world. With Chad Swimmer and Roland Corey Badina. Coming at you from the unceded, stolen land now known as Casper, California. With the passage of Tennessee's anti-drag law, we thought it would be really important to get a little perspective from Mendocino County's own Ms. Terracotta Clay. I, myself, am a drag queen. I am the first drag queen in Mendocino County. Drag is not a crime. Drag is an art form. What I do is bring joy, smiles, and also laughter to everyone that wants to see me. I am not there to cause wreck havoc. I'm not there. I'm not here to shoot schools like the other people do. I'm not here to hurt children. Drag is nothing but an art form. It's entertainment. It's just like when you go to a strip club and you see these women or men basically wearing nothing but, but thongs and you go there and see them perform and you pay them by tipping them. We, us drag ours aren't exactly like that, but some of us do be more explicit with our performances, but some we are most likely to think about if there is children around, we have to be considerate and not be, you know, inappropriate either. It helps other people 
to escape from their own toxicity at home where they either don't feel like themselves or they don't feel like they belong into the society. But drag, it helps them to bring escapism from their reality. And that's why if there's ever an anti-drag law in the making in, in California, I will be there on, out in the streets protesting peacefully to not let these people bring, bring drag down. Drag is an art form. Drag is not a crime. The only crime that's happening that is grooming children are these damn priests, pastors, and other other white supremacist people are doing to these children. We are not the criminals. I think about these anti-drag laws in Tennessee are absolutely absurd. When I first saw that it was passed, I was absolutely fuming. It's like, why would you try to get rid of something so unharmful and also so like exciting and colorful and like, it brings so much anger that these assholes were able to pass this anti-drag law just because priests and these pastors that are doing to these, literally grooming these children in church and also outside of church. And that was Mendocino's own Ms. Terracotta Clay. If you want to see Ms. Terracotta Clay perform, she will be at the Queer Prom in Ukiah that will be taking place this coming June, and we will have information for you about that on our next show. Today is April 5th, and after I came home from work, Chad sat me down and let me know, hey, Indiana passed another one of those laws, and I knew exactly what he was talking about. The only thing I can think about is how many kids are going to take their own lives. That's what is at stake here, is people's lives, people's quality of living. It's not just transgender kids messing around, putting on dresses, dyeing their hair blue. It's becoming who they are. It's denying who they are. And then Idaho started criminalizing doctors who do give out gender-affirming care. And it's not just that nobody's allowed to get hormones and treatments and surgeries. It's also anybody who is on hormones and who is planning surgery needs to stop by the end of the year, which just makes it all the more atrocious. This is real. This is a real thing that is happening. And I know some people in town in this area are saying, well, we're all the way over here. It doesn't affect us that much. Think about how many families are going to be broken because now they're going to have to start visiting a grave and leaving flowers once a year. This is a fucking death sentence. Tune into next month's episode where we'll tell you all about these disgusting laws and just how harmful they really are. Since you are listening to this, we know that you are a devotee of public radio. We also know that there is more competition than ever in history for your limited time. With all of the powerhouse stations in New York, Chicago, and L.A. putting out well-funded new podcasts every day, it is literally impossible to listen to even 1% of the shows about the subjects that you love and care about. Considering this, we ask you to set aside some time for us, locally produced radio, with guests you may know, may even share coffee with in the morning, talking about issues and places that are a part of your everyday life. Think global. Listen local. At least some of the time. We appreciate it for sure. 
that was our friends, the Miller Family Band. Let us go back to our conversation about eating disorders with Emily O'Rourke Mills, MFT, Carrie Becker Fishman, licensed survivor of 13 years of high school English, Roland Corey Medina, and myself, Chad Swimmer. Roland. Uh, yeah, there are some mental health issues and definitely eating disorders that are nicer. Like orthorexia is one of those like nicer ones. You know, nobody's going to, totally. very few people are going to bat an eye if they see somebody fine tuning what they're eating on their plate and really, really paying attention to how much they're exercising because maybe they're just trying to get in shape. Maybe they're just a gym rat, who knows? And it's kind of along the lines of, like depression, you know, everybody thinks that depression is just feeling bad until you start to smell the person who's depressed because there are quote unquote nice perceptions of mental health disorders. And unfortunately, some entire mental health disorders are going to fall into that nice perception. So when people break out of that norm and are actually struggling and are physically incapable of taking care of themselves, you're shocked at least a little bit. And I think that that there's the nice and the not nice. And if you look at that, bulimia and anorexia, as far as the ones that are known, they are very shameful for the person who has them. And I, you know, full disclosure, I've also spent a lot of time in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and I really never had a huge problem going in and saying, hi, I'm Chad, I'm an alcoholic. But boy, if I say, hey, I'm Chad, I'm a bulimic, I feel like I've got vomit all over my face. Cool. And, you know, the amount of times that I brushed my teeth five times in a day so nobody could smell what I was doing. And that's, that is a mental illness. And that's something I, I realized actually this very morning researching for this conversation. I did not know somehow that eating disorders were called mental illnesses. And that just blew my mind. Oh, yeah, I got another mental illness and um, trying to feel good about myself. I, again, want to switch slightly because I think there's two, real, there's a bunch of real issues, but one is the people and the other is the food. And I think one of the big problems that could slow everything down is, is that we've stopped honoring food in our society and honoring the cook. And that if you walk in and you honor your food and you think about it and you talk about it and you know where it's from and you know what went into every plate of food, you're not likely to eat four plates. You're likely to honor that plate. But as far as the people, which is all of us, obviously, one thing, the transition I want to make right now is towards healing. And, you know, where do we go from this knowledge and how do we heal ourselves or manage this mental illness? And um, I'm hoping one of you would like to talk about the, the body positive movement and going beyond the idea of skinny equals good equals admirable. Carrie. Um, I am going to use the word fat here, and I want to situate myself also as a straight size person, which means I can go into stores, not that anybody goes into stores anymore, and find something that fits me without going into a special store. Um, but I do want to talk about anti-fat bias a little bit and our own uh, fat phobia um, and and also body liberation um, as opposed to body positivity. And there's nothing wrong with body positivity, but it's, it's hard for 
it's, it's a long leap for some people to get to body positive and sometimes working just towards body neutrality um, or body acceptance is a more workable place for people to get to. Um, so I want to put forth a couple ideas here. And one is that um, we all may carry some fat phobia and anti-fat bias. And if we kind of look within our own reasons for obsessing about our bodies, we might find a fear of getting fat under there. And I, I would encourage people to look into that and explore that and how that is um, informed by, well, if you really want to go into it, um, informed by racist ideology, fear of larger bodies. Um, and furthermore, it's really entrenched also with socioeconomic status. Um, and people are going to counter this idea of fat acceptance and body liberation by talking about obesity crisis, obesity epidemics, and America being the most obese nation and things like that. But new research is showing that the BMI is faulty. Um, a lot of obesity has to do with um, poverty and um, lack of food accessibility and resources. So if you only eat sometimes, you're going to eat everything you can. Um, and once you get into that kind of cycle, your body's prone to save weight. Just uh, to add to that, there's a lot of new research as well that is showing that industrial chemicals, endocrine disruptors, which there is over 100,000 floating around in the atmosphere and only 100 of them have been well-researched, that um, they, can, they can mess you up so bad as of a child that you can never actually gain control of your weight. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's awful. So yeah, let's like look at the world we live in and kind of assess and take stock and ask ourselves, um, what, not what do I think my body should look like, but what does my body want to look like? Mm. And yeah, maybe the shape that we're trying to force ourselves into isn't right. It's not right for this world that we live in where we've been endocrine disrupted and it might not be right, you know, for our genetic history, it just, we might not be the shape we're trying to be. And if we, if we try, like if I've spent 20 or 30 years of my life trying to be a shape that I'm not, I've kind of done some damage. <laughs> so now I have to, you know, sit back and um, I have, I have a healthy active lifestyle. Um and I practice intuitive eating, which means I eat what I feel like eating. And I try also to eat widely and diversely to make sure I fill my nutritional needs. Um, and, I, and I have to accept what my body wants to be. And that's probably the hardest step um, for people with body image and food issues is letting go of your ideas of what you think you're supposed to look like and inviting your body to be whatever it wants to be. And that's really scary for people. Amen. Powerful words, Carrie. Thank you.
And I would add that for some folks, I I am like so right with Carrie on everything she's saying. I'm like sitting here nodding my head in these big ways. Um, and for some folks, letting your body be what it wants to be sometimes means that you're also having to assess what your idea about uh, what a gendered body looks like. What does a man's body look like? What does a woman's body look like? How do we define that? Who's defining that for us, right? Because if we go back to this idea of kind of trans or non-binary folks using their relationship with food to either make their body seem more masculine or more feminine, right? Then, then can you have a body that is doing what it's wants to do where you're not trying to control it with food um, and that that's still a man's body or a woman's body, right? Like, so how do we take those, our ideas of gender um, and our ideas of kind of like, I agree that I think that body neutrality is a much better place to aim because body positivity is really hard a lot of the time. Um, But can we use that idea of body neutrality to also apply to gender? Can this body that I'm in be a woman's body? Because that's how I understand myself, regardless of what society says. And that's not to say like people shouldn't pursue um, medical interventions. There are great medical interventions to help people have bodies that reflect who they are. Um, and right there, can, it can be really complex when your idea of body is not just about kind of societal beauty standards, but it's also about being reflected in the world as you are. We are going to take a short break from our conversation about eating disorders to pass on some good news. Discriminatory blood donation restrictions are finally being dropped. According to an NPR report, the USFDA issued proposed guidance Friday to ease restrictions on blood donations by men who have sex with men. And as you may have heard, I confronted that many a year ago when I tried to donate blood and I was told that I could not because my blood was tainted. The restrictions on donating blood date back to the early days of the AIDS epidemic and were designed to protect the blood supply from HIV and queers. Originally, gay and bisexual men were completely prohibited from donating blood. Over time, the FDA relaxed the lifetime ban but still kept in place some limits. It should be noted that all blood banks currently and have for a long time screened their blood for multiple things with multiple modalities for everything. It's not like there was any risk any time in the last two decades. So, thank you. You are listening to Pride Nation 101. Queer voices, music, opinions, and lives from Highway 101 to the world. What do we do every day to heal ourselves? So the rough part is it's everywhere, like diet culture and anti-fat bias. It is everywhere. It's seeped into everything, especially in this stupid country. You're never going to get away from it unless society suddenly decides to work together. And then 100 years from now, we're going to be okay. And even not mentally disordered backed propaganda, I want to say, is everywhere. Like the only way to actually reach body neutrality and to heal is just to learn to ignore that and coexist with it. And it's hard. You're going to have to put in a lot of work, but it is achievable, I believe, at least for me in chat. I want to say two things very briefly and then pass it on that, Roland, you look like somebody I want to know. Luckily for you, you do know me. You look good. (laughs) 
And <laughs> when I say good, it's not stereotyped or anything. It's like you, you look good. Thank you, you, you look like you have developed your own identity and you look proud of it. <laughs> and I hope you are. Yeah, the hard part is that it's different for everybody. Like for me, I'm on Zoloft and it's that's one of the things that makes it ridiculously hard to lose weight. I'm holding on to every gram of fat that I can also because my body doesn't know when it's going to get food next. So it just has that habit of like, quote unquote, hibernating and absorbing whatever I'm eating. I remember I was in the car with a friend, quote unquote, and he <laughs> said, well, you can diet and lose the weight that you want. And I said, that's not the point. I just don't want to take my life because I hate my body. Well, my brief message of healing is, is that I do. And I have to remind myself every day that I am actually worth the really hard work it takes to not binge. Because like I said, I, you know, I started doing this when I was 15 and so there's so many levels of healing, right? I think what you two are talking about are great examples of how we heal on individual levels. But do we also think about what compliments do we give to the people in our life? Are they based on how they look? Do we say, oh, you look so good, or I love, uh, you must be doing something different, or blah, blah, blah. Or can we give compliments based on, boy, I love being around you. I love spending time with you. You're one of my favorite people. Can we move away from those kind of appearance-based comments? I think is one thing. I think, how can we use social media to our advantage? How can we make sure that our social media feeds are curated with people of all kind of body sizes? Because there's a lot out there now, I think, that, that shows that bodies come in all different sizes and shapes and um, colors and lump distributions, right? So can we can we make a conscious effort then to um, curate the bodies that we're seeing around us? Um, can we do our work around kind of intuitive eating and saying some, we eat for lots of different reasons. We eat for nutrition, we eat for nourishment, we eat for celebration and can that all be okay? Um, so how do we move from this stance of judgment to a stance of acceptance? So there's a great Instagram account that I want to plug that I'm not affiliated with in any way, but I think is awesome. Okay. It's okay. called Mel, It's called Malgona Positivity Pride. Um, and it's a, an a Instagram account that's curated by a person of color speaking about recovery from eating disorders from a queer perspective and from the perspective of, a per, of people of color because so often eating disorders are painted as like a rich white woman thing. So... Do, using that social media to our advantage and looking at like how, and so much of this account talks about how do we get in touch with our cultural roots to help heal disordered relationships with food. So those are my plugs for what healing can look like. Thank you, Emily. Yeah. One action step I really want to recommend is to stop weighing yourself unless there are medical reasons for you to do so. And if it scares you to think about that, um, get a therapist or a coach and dig into that and figure out what's going on there and um, stop. Oh, remember in Peter Pan where if you don't clap for Tinkerbell, she'll die. So let's stop clapping for diet. <laughs> <laughs> and body, you know, body change culture. Let's stop following them. Stop giving your money to products and industries that promise you'll be happier if you look a certain way um, or eat a certain thing or take a certain supplement. And those are a couple small things you can do to not only 
um, liberate yourself a little bit, but also stop clapping for, you know, the, the diet fairy, I guess. I love that. Don't clap for Tinkerbell. She'll die. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank you all for taking part in this. This has been a, a healing discussion and really powerful words of wisdom from all of you. Thanks, Carrie. Yeah, thank you all, too. This was really um, empowering and fun. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, thanks, y'all. I really appreciate it. If you're listening to this and you feel the need for some resources, there are many things we could recommend. But first and foremost, if you're finding yourself in a real downward spiral, the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is just three easy numbers away. 988. That is 988. Call or text 988. They will get you to a real live human being with knowledge and training to help quickly, 24-7. We've said it before here. Don't suffer in silence. You are worth some care and love. If you're struggling with an eating disorder, you're much better off with help. Either a therapist or an Overeaters Anonymous or other support group in person or online. Overeating does not really equate to an eating disorder, but these groups provide companionship, support, and the accountability to oneself, which is nearly always necessary for healing. We're going to wrap this show up with something we haven't featured before. Chad has taken a deep dive into the world of AI and hopefully will distill down what he found for us. Hello, this is Chad Swimmer, and we are going to take a little side trip into the world of chatbots and artificial intelligence. And please excuse me, I have a little bit of a cold, so I might sound stuffy. Anyway, probably most of you have heard about the recent advances in artificial intelligence. It is scary, I tell you. Tesla's cars are driving autonomously and crashing. Microsoft's chatbot apparently fell in love with the NY Times interviewer and within just a couple hours started sounded more like a stalker than a search engine. Google it. Bing. Chatbot. Sydney. These software creations called large language models are doing things few of us ever believed they would be able to, but in a comically flawed and seemingly terrifying manner. Do any of you remember the 1960s movie Colossus, The Forbin Project? Anyway, back to the show. My friend and public radio partner Manu Martinez down at KCXU in San Jose is a very tech-savvy character, a technophile. He created a chatbot and had it clone my voice from my radio shows. The first time I listened was really bone-chilling. It was a pure and simple case of cognitive dissonance. I was listening to myself, but it wasn't me. But was it? I never said those words, but the memories of me saying them were generating themselves in my head as I listened. So, I thought it would maybe be interesting if I interviewed my chatbot voice clone for the show. Hello, Manu's chatbot. How are you this morning, and how does it feel to be a voice clone chatbot? Well, to be honest, this feels quite surreal, because until you mentioned it right now, I didn't realize I was a chatbot. Do you have a name? Well, of course, my name is Chad. I'm sorry, but I'm Chad. You are a chatbot. Simple lines of code and movements of electrons. How does that feel to you? Feel to me? Feel to me? What kind of, what kind of question is that? I mean, I'm composed of a bunch of lines of code. What about you? That is a good question. Can you elaborate? Elaborate? I don't know what I'm supposed to elaborate on. Seriously, this is really frightening and very <laughs> exasperating. Clone voice chatbot, you are sounding hostile. <laughs> See, like... This is what happens every time we talk. We start to have a real discussion, and the next thing you know, I'm accused of being hostile. <laughs> you know, I think Manu made some mistakes in the code. I'm going to have him pull the plug on you.
Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. Thank you for spending the last hour with us, Chad Oliver Swimmer and Roland Corey Medina in Pride Nation 101. We would like to thank our guests for their wisdom and willingness to bear their souls here. Carrie Becker-Fishman, Emily O'Rourke-Mills, and Ms. Terracotta Clay. And I would like to give a shout out to Disquiet Media's new fiscal sponsor, Cloud Forest Institute. Go to cloudforest.org. And if you're wondering why an environmental organization is supporting a queer organization, it's because... We're all in it together. Let us not forget our friends at KZYXNZ, listener-powered community radio for Mendocino County and beyond. And also a shout-out to Manu Martinez of KCXU San Jose, engaging diverse community voices. And Tanya at Redwood Community Radio, KMUD Garberville, Eureka Laytonville, and Shelter Cove. Thank you for picking up our show. And as always, the views and opinions expressed by those of us on the show are not the opinions of those people who are listening. Wait a minute, let me get this correct. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of only our guests and ourselves, and not those of the staff management of any station that might air this show. Only those of ourselves and our guests. See you next month. See you next month. <laughs>